I'm Roisin Tracy, the Media and Communications Officer at Fight for Sight, and this is I Research Matters, the podcast exploring the personal stories of those living with sight loss and the latest breakthroughs in eye research. On the last episode of this podcast, I spoke to Fight for Sight supporters Rose Roberts and her mother Tina about living with Stargardt disease. This is a genetic eye condition and it causes a progressive central sight loss. Today, we're looking at what research is underway into the condition. The size of the ABCA4 gene is too big to fit into the AV vector, and this has been a problem for this disease for many, many years. It'd be ideal if we could use gene therapy, but we can't, at least not by using a single vector, because it won't fit. There's currently no cure for Stargardt disease, but following early research that was funded by Fight for Sight, a team at the University of Oxford, which is led by Professor Robert McLaren, have developed a new technology that is being used to test a potential treatment for the condition. I sat down with Professor McLaren in his office in Oxford. We talked about his research into Stargardt's disease, and over the course of the conversation, we also discussed retinitis pigmentosa and his test of robot-assisted eye surgery. Professor McLaren, you've quite an extensive CV. So how did you first become involved in ophthalmology? And I suppose, could you give us a little bit of an outline of that CV? Well, I first became interested in ophthalmology actually at medical school. Um, It was in my second year, and we were learning how to look at the back of the eye with an ophthalmoscope. And obviously I enjoyed medical school and had a lot of fun. But uh, when I first saw the back of the eye and I could see all the blood vessels and nerves, I thought that was really exciting. Uh, And uh, that really uh, actually got me interested. Subsequently, I found out more about it during my clinical years. And um, I enjoyed the idea of actually helping people to see. It seemed to me a very valuable uh, way of, of, of treating people. Um, and then I went into clinical training and by that stage pretty much focused on ophthalmology. The, the only thing I did I suppose is a bit different is that before I did my formal ophthalmology training um, I did a PhD in Oxford uh, and looked at regenerative medicine. At the time we were looking at the repair of the optic nerve and that sort of made me realise that the scientific side of ophthalmology was particularly exciting and that I think from then on set my career on being an academic, which is what I currently do. How long have you been here at Oxford? I've been here as Professor of Ophthalmology for just over 10 years. Um, I was originally a consultant at Moorfields Eye Hospital and an academic at UCL. I've been doing that for three years. Um, and then when the ophthalmology department moved into the new West Wing, which is the building that we're currently in, there was an opportunity to build a lab and, and there was space available. And um, because my colleagues here knew that I had previously been in Oxford to do my PhD and I had some connections here, they discussed with me about the possibility of moving my lab from London to Oxford. Um, at the time it was a big upheaval and um, it's not the sort of thing that you want to do regularly, but the potential that I have had here um, I think has been amazing, in, particularly in terms of the space and, and the resources that the people that work in Oxford, the scientists are very good and that's enabled me really to push the programmes forward. Okay, so we're talking specifically on the show today about Stargardt's disease. So for those who might be listening who have never heard of this before, can you tell us what it is? Yes, Stargardt disease um, is actually named after a German ophthalmologist, Karl Bruno Stargardt, who was practicing in Bonn in the early 20th century. So the disease has been around for a long time. In fact, the original descriptions are now over 100 years old. And and what it means is that it's basically a, a disease at the back of the eye uh, an area known as the macula, which is the retina, um, a bit like the film in, in a camera. And gradually throughout life, the central part of the retina degenerates 
and it has a particularly characteristic appearance which is caused by the build-up of vitamin A metabolites and it's this particular appearance that gave it the name Stargardt disease. So most ophthalmologists can recognize it and it's quite useful because if you can recognize a disease by looking at the retina you then know which patients have a specific disease they can be selected for clinical trials and it just helps understand a lot more about the disease and we now know that it's caused by mutations in the gene known as ABCA4 which stands for ATP binding concept family A4 and ATP is the molecule that generates energy and effectively what this protein does is it moves vitamin A from the light sensing photoreceptor cell it moves it out of the cell so it can be recycled and recharged to be moved back in again and this cycling process is deficient in Stargardt disease and the vitamin A products build up in the retina and then they get deposited on the lining of the retina eventually leading to cell death and, and unfortunately loss of vision. So in your experience for people who have Stargardt disease from the time that they are diagnosed how does it impact on their life? Yeah I mean it's important to to realize that the disease is quite variable. So in some cases I may have children, you know, before the age of 10 who've got quite severely impaired vision. They can't, you know, maybe they can only read half of the eye chart and, and they need to have special text and things at school. Uh, on the other hand, I very occasionally diagnose someone very late in life, perhaps in their 70s, with what we call late onset Stargardt disease. And like all things uh, in medicine, diseases can be severe or mild. And a lot of that depends on the genetic mutation and also other genes that may compensate to some extent. And what people tend to do is when you get a disease, you can look on the internet and see, well, what's, what's it on the internet? Invariably, it's always the worst case scenario that you read on the internet. So it's very important, anyone who's got Stargardt disease, to, to have a discussion with a, an experienced ophthalmologist to get really useful answers about how long have I got my sight, what do I need to do, can I carry on driving, all these sorts of things. But it's very, very individual. The internet will give you information in general about the disease, but tends always to be a little bit more sensationalist and always the more severe variety. And right now, how do we treat Stargardt's disease? There is really no approved treatment. Um, what we tend to do is ask our patients to avoid taking vitamin A supplements. If you are already suffering from disease in which there's a vit vitamin A overload, the last thing you want to do is take extra vitamin A. And unfortunately, some products marketed for eye health have vitamin A in them uh, because vitamin A is thought to be good for vision. Now, we need vitamin A for the visual cycle uh, and certainly you know, to see at night is very important. And without vitamin A, we would lose our vision. But there's a difference between having a little bit, just enough to keep things going, versus taking a huge amount of vitamin A. And I might also ask patients to avoid food that's got a lot of vitamin A, particularly liver as well, anything that's high in vitamin A. You and your team are currently researching gene therapies into treating Stargardt's disease. Can you tell me a bit about this? Correct. So the ABCA4 gene is around about 6,700 nucleotides long. That's a bit like talking about a USB stick, you know, how big is the program. The adeno-associated viral vectors, which we use for gene therapy, can carry a payload of around about 4,000, 4,500, including other bits. So the size of the ABCA4 gene is too big to fit into the AV vector, and this has been a problem for this disease for many, many years. It'd be ideal if we could use gene therapy, but we can't. Okay, let me interject here for those who may not have an intrinsic knowledge of what exactly gene therapy is. Gene therapies work by using a harmless virus to act as a package, carrying the correct genetic information into faulty cells so that they start to work properly. 
This approach has been successful in other inherited eye diseases, such as choroideremia, and is halting sight loss or even restoring some sight for patients at clinical trial. However, in Stargardt disease, the faulty gene, which Professor McLaren mentions here, is so large that it needs a bigger viral package to hold the correct information and carries into the affected cells. So the work that we did in my lab here, which was supported by the Medical Research Council, we worked out um, a way of splitting the ABCA4 gene into two halves, which overlap and recombine. And we had additional funding uh, from Fight for Sight that enabled us to look at the effects of this in more detail, particularly in Stargardt disease. And in that research, we were able to show that if we split the ABCA4 gene into two segments in a certain way that can recombine together, they overlap slightly, that can recombine, we can deliver it in two uh, viral vectors, and then when the viral vectors go into the cells, the ABCA4 gene recombines to make the full length. Um, the analogy of this would be something like, um, say, say, say you're trying to build a bridge over a, a river, mm-hmm. and the bridge is too big to fit on one lorry. You know, you, you have two lorries, and you, but you've got to work out where to cut the bridge <laughs> so, so that when you put it, it, it back together again, it's stable. And, and that's the work that we, were, we, we did. And I said that was funded by Fight for Sight. So you can see how that research is very scientific in many ways, but it's answering directly a very important clinical question. Now, as a result of that, the success of the trial, uh, sorry, the success of the research, the University of Oxford has licensed that program to another company, uh, which is which is called Biogen, uh, and that company is now doing more work on understanding the mechanisms in order to develop a clinical trial for patients affected by Stargardt disease. And how far off do we think we are from a clinical trial? Well, that is a question I don't know the answer to, so I'm not directly involved now with it. Uh, but certainly we have two other programs in clinical trial, which were with Biogen, originally from the company Nightstar, which is a spin-out company from Oxford. And, um, you know, those current trials are a priority. Um, but my understanding is that the, um, the Stargardt trial, the development of the, the vectors behind that, will, will not be far away. Okay, so fingers crossed there's a breakthrough in the next few years. How do you see that impacting then people with Stargardt, how are we going to deliver that? Well, it, it is important to, to get things in perspective because, as I said, some people are quite mildly affected by it. Now, there are also other treatments that may be what we call adjunctive treatments, which might slow down the disease. So there are various ways that you might interfere with the vitamin A metabolism by taking drugs. For instance, another project we've been working on involves using a type of vitamin A that's got a slight modification to it. And what that does, it stops it accumulating to forming these um, insoluble clumps at the back of the eye. Uh, that is a drug that's also currently in clinical trial. Uh, that's currently in the US at the moment. And there are other drugs which may just generally slow down the visual cycle. If you've got vitamin A going in and out of the cells you know, all the time because it's being recycled as you see things and the photoreceptors fire off and then the vitamin A is recycled, then if you can slow down that process, you can also slow down the accumulation of the vitamin A waste products. And so there are other products in clinical trial which generally slow down the visual cycle. They may make your vision poor in the dark and, and interfere with your, your dark adaptation, but the likelihood is they'll have some beneficial effect. So if you're someone who's quite mildly affected, it might be that just slowing it down a bit would be enough. Whereas the gene therapy is obviously something which would be ideal, but it does require an operation, surgery, which also has risks to making the vision worse. So I think we'll probably be looking at a balanced approach, which may be a combination of, of perhaps all three. 
How do you envision, I suppose, this being rolled out in the future if, if the clinical trial is successful? Can we see this being something that the NHS is willing to deliver? Uh, the NHS, um, I think, will fund any treatment that's approved. The treatment has to be validated in a phase three clinical trial. And I have to really be honest with you, and I'll scratch my head and think, do I know of any obvious approved treatment that we can't give our NHS patients? And in ophthalmology, I don't think that's the case. We've got a good example of the recent approval of Lux Turner, the gene therapy treatment, which was approved by the European Medicines Agency, subsequently approved by NICE, and now we're, we're getting ready to, to give it. I think where people get a bit confused is where no treatment is available, and then there may be you know, rather less you know, cr- credible treatments being, being advertised. And for instance, you might read on the internet about stem cell treatments typically always capture the imagination. People go, oh, why can't I get that on the NHS? Well, the reason you can't get it on the NHS is not because it's expensive, it's just simply because it doesn't work, or at least it's not been proven to work. Um, but in general, if the treatment meets its endpoints in a phase three clinical trial, I-, I think the NHS will fund it. Is it fair to say that ophthalmology seems to be at the forefront of gene therapy? What do you think that will mean for other conditions of the body? Well, I think you're right about being at the forefront. I mean, you know, the first AAV gene therapy treatment approved by the FDA is from ophthalmological disease. Um, obviously, there's immunotherapies and other things, but what we're talking about is gene replacement, correcting a defective gene, and we can certainly do that. The reason we do that well in the eye is for several reasons. Well, there's lots of good genetic diseases that are characterized in the eye that we know the gene. Um, we can measure the output quite easily about whether the gene therapy treatment is working or not, because we can measure vision very accurately. You know, if you're suffering unfortunate, from an unfortunate disease like dementia, it's very difficult to know, you know, are you getting any better or not? In ophthalmology, we've got the wonderful ability to test patients' vision and reading an eye chart and do other tests. We can tell instantly that the vision is getting better. Uh, and also, the amount of virus that we use is a relatively small amount, so it's very safe. Um, and we can intervene with our patients with a high degree of safety. And if, if a treatment is very safe, it does move things forward very quickly in the early stages when you want to start the phase one trials. Professor McLaren and his team have also recently trialled a new treatment for the eye condition retinitis pigmentosa. I asked him to explain more about the condition and the research that they had carried out in his lab. Retinitis pigmentosa is a name given to a genetic disease in which there's a gradual loss of the light-sensitive cells known as photoreceptors. Um, in Stargardt disease, the loss is in the sort of the, the retinal pigment cells in the central retina, the macula. Retinitis pigmentosa is more severe because it affects all of the light-sensing cells throughout, and patients will eventually be completely blind, not even with any peripheral vision, but completely blind. And this has now become the most common cause of untreatable blindness in younger people, partly because it's increasing in prevalence, and also because the previously common cause, diabetic retinopathy, we've now got much better treatment for that. So it's a clearly an area of huge unmet need. There's no treatment for it at the moment, but being a genetic disease, we and others, of course, are interested in the possibility of gene therapy. And why we're interested in retinal pigmentosa, um, you know, we have a huge number of patients there. We, we kind of, in parallel with the work we're doing in gene therapy and the virus, We've also seen a big explosion in the genetics revolution of being able to diagnose genetic diagnoses in virtually every patient that comes in. So we now can categorise all patients. We know all the genes pretty much and where they all are and and who's got what. So we've been particularly interested in a gene um, called RPGR, which is on the X chromosome. Um, This is probably the most common of the severe forms of RP. Um, It affects young men. 
uh, it can affect women as well, but usually men much more severely, begins in childhood, leads to progressive loss of vision and legal blindness usually in the 20s. You know, it's a devastating disease and very severe. So in that gene, um, the, there is a sequence uh, in the gene which is quite complicated coding with the nucleotides of, you know, the code of the genetic code. The genetic code has four letters, G, T, A, and C. Um, this particular gene, RPGR, about a third of its length, contains only G's and A's. And what that means, it's very difficult to read it, it's very difficult to manufacture it in the lab, and it tends to get read errors when the gene is read, like a computer code, it's completely read errors. And so for that reason, gene therapy with RPGR has always proven challenging, and many research groups have had problems, they've kept deletions and, and the wrong gene comes out the other end. So what we did in the university here, in Oxford University uh, Research Project, we, we worked out a way of stabilizing that region of the genetic code by adding in C nucleotides into that GA region to stabilize it and also prevent it from being chopped up the wrong way. And then we filed the intellectual property, which is an important thing to do. I realize now that if you want funding to do a clinical trial, you have to have the intellectual property to show that you can take that trial into a treatment at a later date. Uh, and that was all successful. And then that program was licensed to uh, Nightstar, which is the company, the spin-out company, and led to a first-in-man clinical trial. So we were first in the world to do treatment for this most common form of the severe form of retinitis pigmentosa. And that first patient was treated in March 2017. Uh, and since then, I believe we've had a well over 30 patients treated across different sites, not just Oxford. We've opened up a trial site in Manchester. We've got several trial sites in the US. So it's a very exciting program. That's about to go into phase three. Um, and I think, you know, I'm very optimistic about that one as well. And is phase three the final phase? Yeah, a phase three trial. Basically, a phase one trial is just showing that it's safe. Usually you see some signals there. which think, oh, that's interesting. We weren't expecting that. And so the phase two trial is where you do more a little bit about the dose ranging. You work out what the right dose would be. And a phase three trial is where you go ahead of the trial to the regulatory authority like the FDA and say, right, we're going to do a trial, we're going to do X number of patients, and if we show this improvement in vision, will you approve the treatment? Okay, and then the FDA will come back and say, yes, we will approve the treatment, but we want you to do it in 50 patients, we want you to have a low dose, a high dose, this is how we want the control structured, um, and if you meet these endpoints that you've specified here, if you meet this endpoint, we will approve the treatment. And so the phase three trial, sometimes called a pivotal trial, is really the one that flips the treatment from being a research into a treatment and of course many drugs do fail at the phase three trial stage uh, it's not an easy one but if you've got good phase two data it's looking very promising it, it, it's normally uh, a process that that we go through um, in order to justify the treatment as it is and do we have a, a time frame then for when this trial will be finished when it might be available on the national health service well, that's a good question as well. Um, I mean, it's widely known that we are quite far down the line in terms of the phase two stroke three trial process. I mean, sometimes a bit of overlap between the two phases. Um, I think the recent approval of Luxterna will make it a lot easier for us with the other gene therapy programs. We've got Croydvemia, which has finished phase three recruitment. Uh, we need to wait a while to see what the results are. And similarly for RPGR. Um, clinical trial approval, approving a drug, is not just showing that it works as a treatment in patients, you also have to show that you can manufacture the drug consistently. And manufacturing has always been an issue with gene therapy because effectively you're making a live organism and you've got to make sure that it's made safely. What the Lux Turner approval has told us about is what the regulators want in terms of the drug manufacturing. 
So we now know that exactly what they need, and so that helps a lot because we don't need to f we don't need to try and guess things now. And so with the manufacturing aligned, we then just need to prove the clinical trial, but we still need to wait at least a year after the intervention. You need to treat a cohort of patients, follow them up, the controls, and then probably there's going to be at least another six months to a year of data analysis and discussions before the final approval comes through. So, okay. you, so you're looking at you know, a three-year plan, I would think. In 2018, Professor McLaren completed the world's first robotic operation inside the eye at John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. After the surgery, Professor McLaren said that there was no doubt in his mind that we had just witnessed a vision of eye surgery in the future. During our conversation, I asked Professor McLaren about the future of this technology. Yeah, the robot is a very interesting project. We basically were interested to find out ways of making the gene therapy surgery safer. And one of the advantages of a robot is that it can physically hold the injection needle in the eye under the retina without any movement at all, or very little, compared to a human hand. So if you imagine, if you're having an injection into a very delicate part of your, your body, to have that needle held very still is important. You know, and the robot enables us to make very small manipulations to hold it still. So when I was at the uh, Uretna meeting back in, I think it was 2014, uh, I met with Mark de Smet, who's an ophthalmologist um, who's been working uh, in the Netherlands with a company, Precise, uh, who've been developing robotic surgery to do routine operations in the eye. And I had a chat with them. I said, look, you know, this program you've got is very interesting for doing routine stuff, but we'd actually wonder whether we might be able to modify it to use it for keep doing gene therapy, effectively to do it almost like still, like holding the, the, the needle. And so we then agreed and we, we set up, we, we had a period of about um, two years where members of my team, we went to Eindhoven and helped the the engineers there develop an attachment to the robot that would enable us to deliver the gene therapy vector. And then we got to a position where we were pretty much ready to go. And, and we then set up a clinical trial to test the robot. And at that time, we realized that actually, no one's actually used an op a robot to operate inside the eye at all. So we can't just rush straight into gene therapy. We'll have to actually validate the use of a robot in the first case. So the first thing we did was we used the needle, but slightly modified so we could peel membranes off the back of the eye and we did a randomized prospective controlled trial comparing robotic surgery to human surgery and showed basically that the outcomes are very similar in terms of safety, but there were some signs that the robot was perhaps a bit more delicate in terms of touching the retina less than the human. And then we went on, that was published in um, Nature Bioengineering as the um, first example of the useful robot to operate inside the eye. Um, and it did, it did become a very interesting project in its own right. And in fact, many patients now come into my clinic and they, they're having an eye operation. They say, well, you know, Doc, I, I'd rather have the robot do it, if you don't mind, than the human. <laughs> you know, that, that's yeah. how confident they are. Uh, and then subsequently we've been doing another trial, which we haven't written up yet. We've finished the trial and recruitment showing the robot doing subretinal injections, very similar to gene therapy. In the last phase, we'd use it for the gene therapy. But, you know, it's our job as ophthalmologists, I think, to refine the surgery to make it safe. Ultimately, the work on the research is to develop the virus and the gene therapy, but also we need to think how to deliver it safely, and the robots allowed us to do that. Mm. So how far are we off robots carrying out all surgeries? Um, I think at the moment um, we are focused on getting the drugs approved. Okay, You can always try and optimise, improve, and you keep going sideways. At the end of the day, let's just get the gene therapy treatments approved, and then once we've got them approved and there's more people using and more patients being treated, we can then think about refinements to the surgery, and if we do have particularly difficult patients or problems from the surgery, 
we do have in the background ready to go a robotic system that we could use potentially for delivering the virus. The, the robotic system is very helpful, not just because it keeps the needle still, but if you imagine if we detach the retina to inject the virus underneath it, if we have a very, very slow infusion, we can basically give variable doses, not by the size of the fluid injected, you know, how much we detach the retina, but by the duration of the infusion. So you could have a very shallow retinal detachment, which is very gentle on the retina, and just have the infusion going for 10 or 15 minutes or so, just slowly pumping the fluid through with the virus in it. And you could vary your dose depending upon the infusion time rather than the volume. And I think that would make it a lot safer. Okay, so I guess what you're kind of saying is that although it's an exciting technology, it's not it's not so much of a priority. But what other emerging trends in ophthalmology and in eye research are you most excited about at the moment? We are, in my lab, working now almost exclusively on gene editing, where you can actually use molecules, or proteins, to edit and correct genetic mutations at both the level of the DNA, which is the genetic code, and the RNA, which is the bit that's read from the DNA. At the moment, gene therapy has focused on just ignoring the host genome and putting in the cells our own copy of the gene that's missing. That works well for small genes where we need to replace the gene. But where you have large genes that you can't fit into the AAV vector, or where you have a dominant disease where there's a mutant gene that is causing a problem, the ability to correct these genes using gene replacement therapy is quite limited. So gene editing gives us the opportunity to, to correct the disease at the genetic level. This is a technology sometimes referred to as CRISPR, which you may have heard about. And there's, you know, it's a very exciting technology. It's only discovered in 2012, so it's relatively new. But we've been working it. We've put CRISPR gene therapy editing systems in our lab into, into viral vectors. Croidremia and XNTRP are both ideal diseases for gene replacement therapy using another DNA from a virus delivered which sits in the cell and replaces, like patches, the missing gene. But where you've got genes that are too big for AAV, even using the two-cargo approach, which I mentioned earlier, like Usher-2A, okay, that's a very common cause of RP, uh, that gene is 16,700 approximately base pairs long. You'd need several AAVs to do it, and of course to try and reassemble it would be very difficult. So, But there are often some common mutations which could be corrected, potentially. And if you think about it, you've got two copies of every gene. You need to correct one to basically to remediate the disease, because most carriers of USH2A don't have any disease at all, carrying one mutation. Um, but we need to know how to do it safely, and we need to work out exactly the, what genes we're going to target, what specific mutations. But I think that's where I see the big areas expanding in future, because then you can mop up all the other causes of RP that we currently can't treat. Professor McLaren, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to iResearch Matters. To learn more about our research or to donate to help us fund further research into sight loss conditions, you can visit our website at fightforsight.org.uk. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Fight for Sight UK.